Welcome to Stories from an Island. I'm Mark Borbus. In this fiction podcast, I read stories I've written in my ongoing attempt to make sense of the world around me. These are all works of fiction, so any resemblance to people alive or dead is purely coincidental. Thanks for taking the time to listen. This is episode one. Today's story is a short one, entitled A Place to Talk on the Phone. Here we go. My quest began at our kitchen table. Me, my laptop, and my mobile phone. Well, sort of. The phone sat 10 feet away, outside on our porch, beaming a flaky Wi-Fi signal back to my laptop. This quest would eventually take me into every room of our cottage on Salt Spring Island, every corner of our two-and-a-half-acre property, and even into a handful of accessory buildings and vehicles, all in search of a place to talk on the phone. The Wi-Fi hotspotting grew old quickly. Emails and chats would pour like lumpy gravy into my inbox, often hours late. I took most of my calls out under the cherry tree in the yard, where the cell signal was strongest. On rainy days, I'd stand on the edge of the porch. The signal never went above two bars, and it was worse when it rained. If the meeting was really important, I'd drive to my parents' house and work in my mother's art room. My untended laptop would slide off her drafting table, but the internet was good. Our cottage had neither phone nor cable wiring. I had pulled it all out years ago during the first phase of our renovation and had never put it back in. The point is not to use the internet here, I explained to my kids, when they used to complain their online games didn't work. I was eating my words now, one missed email at a time. When the cable technician finally arrived to connect the service, he left behind a coil of nearly 100 feet of coaxial cable that dropped down from the electrical mast at the front of the house, over the gutters, and into a pile by the hose bib at the front door. So I'd have lots of options as to where to bring the line in. For the next two months, the coil of wire lay propped against the house with a short 10-foot tail leading to the modem, which was plugged into an outdoor electrical outlet beside the front door. Within a week, the ventilation louvers on the modem were caked with pollen as the fir trees sifted a thick yellow powder over the whole yard. Still, We had internet. The weather warmed, and I moved my base of operations from the dining room table, which the kids were also using for remote school, to a green steel desk on the porch. I could last about an hour out there, wearing four layers of clothing, before I'd have to come inside to warm up. The cheap modem the internet provider Lista struggled under the burden of multiple video calls, YouTube, and Netflix streams. I became adept at muting and unmuting calls when heavy vehicles rolled past on the road in front of the house. Something about our porch roof, concrete floor, microphone, and the low-frequency rumble of a heavy truck created a deafening roar for other call participants. I turned on video very occasionally, but I looked pretty unprofessional. My standard uniform of a button-down shirt and natty blazer was replaced by a bulky sweater, a puffer jacket, a down vest, a scarf, and a toque. The outfit screamed, I went to Eddie Bauer and bought the window display, and I'm wearing all three models' outfits at once. On sunny days, I would be blinded by the low-angle east sun in the morning. So a turquoise beach umbrella tipped at an angle allowed me to see the screen again. It worked beautifully on calm days. On windy days, the umbrella would tremble violently and then lift off and roll across the front yard. I practiced not following it with my eyes so other meeting participants wouldn't be distracted. The webcam struggled to adjust the white balance and my eyes fought through tears to see the screen. 
I moved my desk out into the front yard under a large cherry tree that has a beautiful canopy of leaves. Here I found the all-day shade I needed. Feeling the neck and shoulder strain of nearly two months of daily laptop use, I rigged up a keyboard shelf from an old piece of wooden countertop. The raw cut edge dug into my wrists, but my shoulders wept with relief. Meanwhile, oil prices went into freefall as demand dried up. Half of my company's customers were major oil producers. The other half were mining companies who were also feeling the pressure as China took their foot off the gas for the first time in a decade. The company is owned by a newspaper conglomerate that was already eight rounds into a pitched battle against the internet. They began talking of layoffs and salary cuts. Within a month, everyone's pay and hours had been cut by 15%. My work situation felt both temporary and vulnerable. I didn't know whether this was a blip or a long-term change. So it didn't make sense to invest in a proper space to work. I wasn't alone as I spoke to colleagues around the world. It seemed like everyone had a corner of a bed frame in their background. And those fortunate enough to have home offices were the envy of all. Nobody knew when we'd be called back to the office. For many weeks, it was a week-by-week decision. Then the company began surveying people and coming up with arbitrary deadlines. As a member of the management team, I had full visibility into this process. And that was even more unnerving. It got cold and rainy in May. I moved my laptop, screen, and keyboard into my son's room, carefully shifting the mounds of broken action figures, old sketches, and various found objects. Now I could wear normal clothes. Microsoft released the background blur feature for Teams at about this time, which was a godsend when you're working out of a 12-year-old boy's room. It worked well when my son wasn't around. He lived with his mother in Vancouver about half the time during the early phases of COVID. When he and his sister arrived, I'd orphaned the 24-inch widescreen monitor on his desk and moved back out to the patio or the field. My father-in-law visited for several weeks. As he had to pass through my son's bedroom to get to the bathroom or the kitchen, are you on camera? was a frequent query on rainy days. In between calls, I'd search the internet for prefab studio buildings. Kits, plans, pictures. I dreamed of a little building where I could work comfortably but the costs were always just a bit too much, especially considering we had to install a washing machine and dryer, fix the roof over the laundry room, and conserve cash as income was uncertain. Also, I could work in all these various places, as my job was mostly on the computer or online. My wife is an actor and needed a space to audition and tape her performances. She was operating out of a corner of our bedroom, moving five pieces of furniture out of frame every morning setting up lights, and then trying to appear calm and collected on camera. So we earmarked an old chicken coop as a studio space for her. We shored up the foundation, we installed a massive picture window we salvaged for $40, ran electrical to it from a sub-panel in our garage, re-roofed it, and basically transformed it from a derelict shack into a beautiful, creative space. Meanwhile, I tried working out of my son's fort, a six-by-eight-foot structure tucked in the far corner of our property. A 200-foot extension cord powered my monitor and laptop and a space heater. I wore a toque in my old four-layer outfit. The fort was at the furthest edge of our Wi-Fi coverage. Audio calls were possible, but video calls were typically too choppy. It's just as well. My environment was three yawning steps below what most people called rustic. 
Fortunately, during this phase, most of my calls were either one-on-one or group calls where everyone spoke in turn. When it was my time to talk, I'd just transfer the call to my phone and walk closer to the router, often standing back on the front porch to say my piece before retreating to the relative warmth of my son's uninsulated fort. As I sat shivering, I mused on converting the fort to an office. It's framed out of reclaimed cedar decking from my parents' old house, sheathed in a mixture of plywood and oriented strand board that the manager at the lumberyard gave my son for free. These are a little worse for wear, having been used as sacrificial cover sheets for lumber that sits out in their yard all winter. Quite a few nails show through the sheathing. Most are close to the studs where my son missed by a bit, firing the air nailer. We were more focused on not putting a nail through someone's foot than accuracy of nail placement, and it shows. The window on the west-facing wall is an old storm door from our house, laying on its side. Air seeps freely around the edges of it, and the glass panes rattle in the lightest of breezes. Another storm door serves as the entrance to the fort, and is directly behind me. It has similarly low insulating and weather resistance attributes. Lastly, there are no soffits, so the cold air flows under the eaves and finds a direct path into the structure. The robins have been casing it for weeks as a nesting location. You know, a hundred bucks in insulation and vapor barrier might be enough to make it usable. I opined to my father. He's renovated a dozen houses in his lifetime, including ours. He thought for a moment, and I waited for the lip curl eyebrow raise, and shrug that would accompany a, yeah, and then be followed by a few nods as he appraised the possibility. Forget about it, he replied. You'd be better off working in the garage. The garage is a 12 by 24 foot building jam-packed with tools, boxes, and mud wasp nests. It smells like motor oil and banned pesticides. It is also uninsulated, unless you consider the R-factor of 20 years of cobwebs. It's bone-chillingly damp in the winter and infernally hot in the summer. The concrete floor tells the story of hundreds of DIY projects. Oil stains blend into paint spills, which can barely be distinguished from blood droplets adjacent to every major tool. A millimeter-thick layer of dust carpets the floor. No, we need that space for tools and storage, I reasoned. For many years, the garage was the only secure, weather-tight, vermin-resistant structure on our property. It contained all the tools and parts the previous owner collected over a lifetime. A pool cue turner, several bowie knives, a drawer full of nothing but metal files. I found a single condom from 1996 still in its cardboard sleeve. Every few years, I would attempt to clean the space up, hacking away at it like a Himalayan blackberry bush only to watch it creep back towards entropy before my eyes. Both my father and I used the space and had the bad habit of leaving a few pieces of our last project on the workbench. I'd taken to sweeping everything off the workbench every month into a cardboard box. If we didn't venture back in the box, it went to the garbage pile. Stacks of storage totes contained everything we needed to set up a one-bedroom apartment in the city. Others contained my work wardrobe, blazers, button-down shirts and dress pants, and my wife's frocks and high heels. 
deeper in the garage were the good ideas and deals we'd accumulated from garage sales. A rock tumbler, fishing rods, three Dremel tools, several spare bed frames, and enough twin-size bedding to outfit a modest orphanage. The chaos of our collective brains and all the identities we aspired to or couldn't let go of. Succumbing to constant pressure from my mother and father, I move into the motorhome they store on our property. It's a beautiful, modern, 25-foot-long Winnebago, leather upholstery, dark wood cabinetry, and most importantly, a built-in propane heater. Initially, I set up towards the back, arranging my monitor and computer between the twin beds on a plank that connects them. This allows me to sit on a conventional office chair. It's narrow, though, so I have to walk into the space, pulling the chair behind me, and moonwalk the chair out when I'm ready to leave. But it's warm, quiet, and my screen is at the right height. The kids can noisily complete their online school lessons inside. I can think in here. By the third day, I get tired of the spotty internet and drive 10 feet closer to the house. Problem solved. My fuzzy video calls now come in clear HD. On the fourth day, I stand up quickly, bash my elbows on the bed, and kick the chair so it wedges in the doorway. There isn't enough space to turn around to free the chair with my non-wounded arm. Two minutes later, the pins and needles radiating out from my funny bone wane sufficiently so I can straighten the chair and then moonwalk back into the kitchen sitting area. I swear profusely. My kids were still constantly coming and going during this time. One week I'd need to exile myself from the house to find a space quiet enough to work, and then the next I'd have my choice of nearly any room in the house as it was just me, my wife, and our dog in 950 square feet. Just when I'd get fed up with whatever temporary situation I'd come up with, I'd get some relief. My colleagues enjoyed the calls I took from my daughter's room. They liked the background that appeared behind me. One day I had the bright idea to take a picture of it and feed it into Microsoft Teams as a custom background. Now I always appeared in front of a green wall with a gold sun-shaped mirror hanging on it. It worked beautifully on the days I worked in the motorhome. I'd taken to spinning the driver's seat around to face my monitor and keyboard which sat on a floating table that rose on a single pedestal out of the floor. The virtual background did a great job disguising the very real windscreen and dashboard behind me. I settle into a routine. I work in my daughter's room when she's away, and on the front patio and back patio when she's here, unless it rains, in which case I work in the motorhome. This all works beautifully until the kids arrive, along with a week of rain, and my parents drive my mobile office to Vancouver Island for a camping trip. I work on the front patio in 45-minute stretches, wearing four layers of clothing again and a new pair of fingerless gloves. My daughter says I look like an extra from Rent. I sing the theme back at her as punishment, purposefully mixing up the number. 4,6201 million minutes. As the weather brightens, I'm forever shifting the angles of my various workstations to avoid either blinding myself, looking like a washed-out ghost, or being so deep in shadow that I look like one of those confidential informants they used to interview on 60 Minutes. My back and shoulders also ache from all the makeshift chair-desk combinations. Then it hit me. I enjoyed working in multiple locations. The variety was good. I had to embrace it. What if my desk could move with me? I sketched out a compact standing desk that would sit on casters. All my equipment would be properly positioned and bolted down. Rainy day with no kids? Roll my desk into my daughter's room for the day. 
Midday call when my son is at the lake? Roll into his room. Need some fresh air? Roll my desk out onto the front patio. Want some sunshine? Roll out onto the back deck. A week later, I'd built a beautifully proportioned 30 by 36 inch standing desk that sat on hefty 3 inch wheels. All the door openings in our house are custom sizes. None are larger than 30 inches. The rolling desk doesn't fit through any of them. So much for my dreams of endless easy mobility. Fortunately, we have two French doors into the house which open wide enough to get the desk inside. One leads into my daughter's room, the other into our living room. I mostly work in her room, swapping the virtual background of the green wall and gold mirror for the real one. There's a heater at my feet and windows on three sides of me. The coffee machine is 25 steps away and the bathroom is 15 steps away. The room is on the west side of the house. It's glorious to work in the morning as all the light is indirect and filtered. I look great on camera. By the afternoon, the sun begins shining through the French doors to my immediate left. It gets hot and I start dropping layers of clothing. I pull the pink velvet drapes for some relief, but the lighting makes it look like a teen makeout scene in an 80s movie. It does soften the fine lines around my eyes, though. By 2 o'clock on a summer afternoon, it will get too hot to work and I'll take calls from the front patio or under the cherry tree again. When my daughter visits, I roll the desk out onto the back patio and face west, tucking myself under the roof eaves off the living room. This works until about 11, when the sun crests the roof and interferes with my ability to read the screen. I also squint like Clint Eastwood in an old western. So I break for lunch and roll my desk onto the front patio for the afternoon, strategically muting my microphone when a truck rumbles past on the road. A better microphone would probably be able to deal with the background noise, but this all feels temporary, and I don't want to spend money on kit that a move back to the office will render useless. Gradually, the weather warms. The kids go back to school in person, so they visit less, giving me longer stretches of stable work time in one location. We finish my wife's studio just in time for a family reunion, and my father-in-law sleeps there for a few weeks. When he moves out, I move in. It's a beautiful space. I orient my camera carefully to frame out the bed and the open electrical boxes where sconces will one day be installed. It's quiet separate from the house, warm, and smells great. I can talk on the phone and nobody cares or bothers me. But it's not mine. I feel like my dirty corporate energy is sullying a pristine creative space. Also, the power blips on and off when it rains. You don't notice it until you plug in something electronic like my monitor and webcam, both of which flick off every five minutes or so, unceremoniously ending whatever call I was on. My wife is convinced she has an energy field that causes electronics to malfunction. Having seen numerous examples of it in our eight years together, I now believe it. Somehow, her energy field remains in the studio, buggering up my electronics. After three rainy days in a row and a string of broken video calls, I heed the message to vacate this sacred space and I move back into my daughter's bedroom. The next day, I begin cleaning out the garage. Every day at four, I roll up the door, open a can of Paps Blue Ribbon, and start sorting. I fill buckets with arcane fasteners, brackets, and other pieces of metal. I set aside treasures, both to decorate my office with, but also to sell through the local consignment store, where old tools and equipment fetch decent prices. I do all of this carefully and with great respect. 
The former owner has visited me many times in my dreams as we've renovated the house, always upset at the changes. I calm him down and he leaves. But I always awake feeling rattled. The garage feels like his most sacred space, and so I treat it this way, if only to save myself a few disquieting nightmares. Fifteen PBRs later, the garage is clear of debris, and I've drank my fill of cheap beer. There are five buckets full of random scrap metal, two boxes of worthless archaic tools, and a third box of attractive archaic tools that I will consign. I set aside bowie knives, pool cues, a tiny geologist's hammer, a Kylo Ren look-alike welding mask, and copies of the safety code for the bridge workers who built Vancouver's second narrows crossing. The prior owner of the house worked on the bridge and helped pull his drowning colleagues out of Burrard Inlet the day the bridge collapsed mid-construction. These will all be decorations for my new space. The five buckets of random scrap metal sit in our carport today. The fellow who used to take metal recycling for free left after the local zoning authorities refused to let him continue operating his business. Now it costs 33 cents a kilogram to drop scrap metal off at the local transfer station. One day, I'll take it off island and use the proceeds to fund my ferry trip and coffee. The next step is to frame in an interior wall that will divide the office from the workshop space. I ham and haw about maximizing workshop space and how little space I need to work. But there's a window I don't want to move. That means the office will either be 10 feet deep or 6 feet deep. I opt for a 10 by 14 foot office space. It's larger than any office I've had in my career and a far cry from my last 7 by 7 foot space in Vancouver. Next, I remove the garage door and frame in a new exterior wall in the front with spaces for the two tall windows I scavenged from a Devonville yard in Surrey. My wife and I watch home design shows as a guilty pleasure when we stay in hotels. What comes next in my project is the segment where they always use fast-forward and time-lapse to make tedious tasks like wiring and insulating unfold in seconds. They are painfully slow IRL. I find a moldering pile of shiplap at the lumberyard as I'm nearing the end of these tasks. I peel off a few of the top boards and find beautiful clear grain fir planks, 14 and 16 feet long. They're willing to give it to me at half price, which makes it only twice the materials cost of drywall and with none of the dust, waste, and fragility. I challenge you to find a happier man at the lumberyard that day. My dad helps me strap 44 planks onto his minivan. The roof racks sag under the weight and we drive home at 30 kilometers an hour leading a half-kilometer motorcade down the main road on the island. It feels like a fitting homecoming for this beautiful wood. Over the next 10 days, I painstakingly whitewash each plank twice, working in batches of seven. Math says it should take a week, but time is elastic when you're renovating an older space. While painting the plank seems to take forever, installing them feels like a design show montage sequence. I get a wall done a day, air nailing in 45-minute spells between meetings and email. I listen to a lot of CBC Radio. The Vancouver traffic report still triggers my stress response two years after I stopped commuting. How many times did it come on just as I was slowing down to join a long tailback of traffic? And the cruel irony is there's only really three major east-west routes in Vancouver and the same number of north-south routes. The traffic report can't help you avoid congestion, it just helps explain why you're not going anywhere. The laminate floor goes in next. I've never put one in, 
but two of the fellows in my dad's group recommend a magical L-shaped bar that makes the job go much faster. I choose to ignore the two-inch level difference between the middle of the room and the west wall. I've spent many days of my life on ships at sea. A little heel to my desk is nothing new. Later, I'll discover that it's sloped enough that my phone will slide across the desk surface if I leave it face down on a smooth book. The power glitch is solved. It was not my wife's electrical field after all. A loose wire coming into the electrical panel is the culprit. This panel serves the office, studio, and workshop. Throughout this time, I'm squeezing my construction work in between my day job, changing out of bib overalls and throwing on a clean shirt for meetings. Fortunately, they're all online, so all that matters is what I look like from the waist up. My co-workers point out paint and insulation in my hair a few times when I've had to rush into a meeting without a quick camera check. My wife's birthday gift to me is a door for the office. She had the lumberyard hang a full glass door we originally purchased for her studio but never used. It's solid wood and weighs a ton. I eagerly hang the 30-inch door. My rolling desk is still in my daughter's bedroom. Now, sequencing is one of the trickiest parts of construction, and I'd gotten it nearly perfect on this job for the first time, only to be caught out at the end. I back out enough screws to separate the desk into two pieces, a top and a base. I'll be able to maneuver those through the doorway. But the two pieces remain stubbornly anchored together, although the desk now sways and shimmies in a way that renders it unusable. I can't go back. It turns out I had sunk a few screws before I applied the trim around the top, edge of the tabletop. The aspiring Finnish carpenter in me set the demo expert up for a tough task. They are hidden under the trim, which is glued and nailed on. Out comes a reciprocating saw, a wicked tool, with a 12-inch blade that will cut anything in its path. The blade cuts by moving back and forth rapidly, but it also hops from side to side. It's a crude tool of last resort not a precise surgical instrument. I set to work with it on my finely finished piece of desk furniture. For the last cut, I'm holding the saw in my right hand, barely controlling its eccentric movement as best as I can, while steadying the desk with my left to prevent it from oscillating in harmony with the saw. When the last screw releases, the base and the top separate cleanly, and I carry them into the office, where I promptly reassemble the desk less than 10 feet from where I took it apart. One step backward, one and an eighth steps forward. It's a close ratio, but still forward progress. The desk has acquired a few creaks that weren't there before. Nothing is ever quite the same once you take it apart and put it back together again, especially when you use a reciprocating saw. That's an old Buddhist proverb. I finally move into the office in early November. It's not completely done. The windows aren't framed in. The wall paneling around the electrical panel is still off, and there are no baseboards. I'm careful to position my desk and camera to hide these messes, but they wear on me. I hate staring at work that has to be done when I can't do it. Most days I work from 8.30 a.m. until about 2 p.m. and then spend another hour from 4 to 5 planning out the next day. Yeah, I know, it's only a 7-hour day, but I'm ruthlessly efficient without the distractions of a typical office environment. I'm approached by a headhunter who sets up a 2 p.m. call on a Tuesday. It's a video call, and I take it from my writing desk as I know the sun on the white wall behind my computer desk will throw off the white balance on the camera. I should have tested the setup first. The bright afternoon sun streams through the windows, washing my face out and leading me to squint like Clint again. I'll need some curtains. The first big November rain arrives. 
A three-foot span of the interior west wall is soaked the next morning, black and brown stains seeping across the freshly whitewashed paneling. I fetch the ladder and staple some tar paper over the sections of the roof that I believe are leaking and hope for the best. Then, the worst storm to hit the Pacific Northwest in many years arrives the next day. They call it an atmospheric river. The ugly stain spreads further on the wall. The next clear day, I climb up on the roof again with a fresh bucket of roof patch. I smear the bitumen product over any sketchy part of the 25-year-old roof, thanking the Canadian oil sands for their miracle bounty. The next day brings more biblical rain. The stain doesn't spread. Every morning at 7 a.m., the lamp over my writing desk flicks on. More days than not, I trudge out and write for 20 minutes, or 40 minutes, or an hour. Then I return to the house to eat breakfast and dress for the day. By 8.30, I'm back out in my office taking my first meeting of the day. At last, I've found a place that I can talk on the phone. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for a story entitled... The Dirty Movie. Bye for now.